Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. And we're back. Greg, I just can't get enough of that hero cat. Can you believe how she chased that dog away? Watching that video is the pause that refreshes. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Let's go to TTB's nonstop news meteorologist, Kion Wolf, with the five-day forecast. Kion, it looks like you're keeping cool. That's right, Lee. Greg gave me permission to wear short sleeves because of all the heat. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's take a look at the board. This band of intense showers is going to inch across the state for the next three hours, but it won't bring relief from the heat. In fact, I want to talk about climate change for a moment. It's getting scary. Satellite tracking shows Antarctica losing 159 billion tons of ice every year. Which is up from... Speaking of Antarctica, did you see that YouTube video of the penguin on roller skates? Going through the mall? Attention shoppers! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Good one, Lee. No, no penguins on roller skates. Do not put that up. This is serious. But it's also a chance for the very best qualities in human beings to be pulled forward. If we set aside our differences and act for the good of this planet, our planet, we can make a difference. Well, that's very profound, Kion. You know, I wouldn't mind watching that Hero Cat video again. We could play it backwards. Have we ever played it backwards? Not since Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe they do have a point. Not everybody wants to hear about climate change, but what do local meteorologists think about it? That's the theme of our show today. And now, speaking of ice, our wacky traffic guy is going to sing his report to the tune of Let It Go from Frozen. Here he is, Colin McEnroe. Oh, I'm actually not prepared for that. Uh, let's see. Let it go. Taillights on 84. I don't know. I don't know how to do this. Um, I'd like to say that uh, our guests here do not work at any TV stations that have that kind of happy talk format. Uh, that's simply a product of my imagination. Uh, we do want to talk about these guys because local meteorologists are really the science communicators that you probably see the most in your life. Uh, if you think about it, unless you're actually enrolled in a science program somewhere, uh, the, the people who talk to you the most, not just about weather science, but any kind of science, probably on a daily basis, uh, you're seeing uh, the face and hearing the voice of one of the people that we're uh, talking to here today or one of their colleagues at, at the stations around Connecticut. So with us in the studio is Ryan Hanrahan, meteorologist at NBC. His blog is Way Too Much Weather, uh, which can find, be found at ryanhanrahan.com. Bruce DePriest is a meteorologist with 36 years of experience, is the chief meteorologist at WFSB. Garrett Argianis is the meteorologist at NBC, NBC Connecticut. His website is, uh, is Weatherx? Weatherx? How do, you, how do I say that? Weathercs.com. Weathercs. Weather I was trying to pronounce it as a word, and there was my mistake. It's not a word. All right. It's not a word. Um, in a little while, also, we're going to talk to Andrew Revkin. He's been covering global warming since the 1980s and teaches at Pace University and writes the Dot .earth blog for the New York Times. Um, so I, I want to begin... Uh, before we get uh, deep in the weeds here, but just sort of talking about who you guys are and what it is that you do. So, Ryan, there's a difference. I mean, we're going to be talking about climate science, but you're not a climate scientist. You guys aren't climate scientists. That's not what you signed up for. You're a meteorologist. So what does that mean? What's the difference? 
So basically what we do on a daily basis is we come up with a forecast for the next three, four, five, six, seven days. Uh, we talk about short-term weather events, tornadoes, hurricanes, thunderstorms, um, and we don't on a daily basis deal with long-term trends that would be the difference between weather and climate. Climate is what you'd see over the course of decades or hundreds of years. You know, we don't issue a 100-year forecast at the, on the 6 o'clock news. We do a seven-day forecast. And so there's a fundamental difference between weather and climate, and I'm not sure the general public really understands that. Um, and I think that's one of the things we try to communicate to people. If we do nothing else today, we will try to unthread uh, those differences. And so, Bruce, what makes a person get into meteorology? To, be, to do what you do, and you've met lots of your colleagues uh, over the years, is there a common thread, a certain kind of curiosity, a certain set of interests that, that brings you into a field like this? I would say uh, yes. We First of all, I think there has to be a passion. Everybody's interested in the weather. Everybody wants to know how the weather is going to affect their life. But I think what grabbed a lot of us at a young age was that passion in weather. And uh, I go back uh, longer ways than uh, what Garrett and Ryan do. I, I was born, you know, in the uh, 1950s, and I had a chance to grow up and um, in the 1960s, which was a be- very profound decade. And that's uh, a decade when we landed men on the moon, saw a lot of advances. Uh, you know, Vietnam was going on, a lot of crazy things going on in the world. And here I was a kid interested in astronomy, interested in weather, seeing, you know, men being landed on the moon. I'm thinking, why can't we do anything about the weather? So, you know, my father bought me a telescope. I became interested in astronomy and just in general was turned on to science at that age and uh, basically stuck with it because I have a passion in the weather, not just a casual interest. It's a passion that just kept me going through the rigorous calculus and physics that we have to go through with college. And that turned some people away. It's a very difficult program. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that. Some people think that, you know, we just get up there and we present somebody else's forecast. They do the graphics for us. But no, we're the scientists behind the forecast and the makers of that forecast. Uh, so I was really turned on at a young age, became passionate about it. And I think that's a common thread that we all have. So, um, Garrett, you know, Bruce is talking about the training. So in the training, in the education that you go through, is climate science, as we would understand that, part of that training, or are you getting trained differently? And is that word not being said quite so much? Well, I would argue that at this point in time, climate science is a more uh, broader discussion in the undergraduate level than it was even back when I went to school. It was about 15 years ago. And climate science and climate change were just kind of coming onto the radars of a lot of people. And so... You know, in my education as an undergraduate from 1997 to 2001, we had some discussion about climate, but there was not a big focus on climate change and its impacts. And so, I mean, that raises the question, um, Ryan. I mean, as I say, you guys are probably the most omnipresent science communicators in most people's lives, you know, unless they have subscriptions to a lot of magazines like Scientific American or something like that. On a casual basis, you guys talk to them about a kind of science, which, as Bruce says, you guys get a lot of training and you are the scientists behind a forecast. But I guess I'm sort of wondering also, I mean, obviously on a nightly basis, most meteorologists don't talk about climate science. They talk about meteorology. And, and I'm also I'm wondering, I'm first of all wondering how different are those two fields? Is it like a cardiologist talking about dermatology? Because I have no interest in my cardiologist's opinion. It's about dermatology. Or are you guys a little closer together than that? I'd say a little closer together, but... I mean, the two fields are very different. Someone who studies uh, climate science 
uh, probably doesn't know much, if anything, about tornadoes or hurricanes and vice versa. A hurricane scientist probably knows very little about climate change unless they're looking at the links between the two. Um, so there is some crossover, and I think you know meteorologists in general have a you know fundamental understanding of how the atmosphere works, um, why you get certain weather patterns. Um, and where it all comes from. It comes from the, the solar energy coming down to the earth and you're able to get weather. Um, but the two are very different. And, you know, just like, you know, Garrett said, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of climate educate, climate science education in college. There was very little of that. And what what I've learned through the years has really been what I've sort of sought out myself, mm-hmm. reading journal articles, trying to keep on top of the latest information. But it's not easy to do. Uh, you have to, you know, figure out where the information is coming from. Is it good? Is it coming from reputable sources? And so you sort of have to fish through all of that and uh, educate yourself. Is there also a difference in temperament? I mean, if you gravitate towards meteorology, Bruce described a certain qualities uh, that he sees in himself and maybe sees in other meteorologists. Are, are you interested in a, in a certain group of things, a certain group of questions that are fundamentally different, not even, not even on the basis of, of the different spheres of knowledge, but the kind of curiosity? I'm like, are meteorologists sort of really, really interested in these immediate weather patterns in a way that kind of dovetails with your overall personality and temperament? That's a good question. I mean, I mean my, my first weather-related memory was being a little kid on Cape Cod and missing the Hamden tornado. I grew up in, I was in Brand, living in Brantford at the time on vacation on the Cape, and my dad was still working at Hamden, and I was devastated that I wasn't there for the tornado crying, upset. I couldn't believe it. That was my the first thing I remember weather-wise was the 1989 tornado. Okay, so that would, that we, would be a way in which you guys are different from most people. Both of <laughs> yes. us want to be someplace else when the tornado It's comes. a little strange. Um, but, I mean, we all do have a passion for the science. Um, we love it. If there's a snowstorm coming, you know, we may work a 12, 15, 16-hour day. But chances are if we weren't at work tracking the snowstorm, we'd be watching it from home. Um, we may be probably dressed a little bit differently, wearing sweatpants <laughs> as opposed to a suit. Uh, but, I mean, there are very few people in this field who don't absolutely love meteorology. Um, and that's one of the things that is really cool about about the weather and, and our careers is that we're able to do what our hobby is. We're able to do what we love on a, on a daily basis. You know, Bruce, I guess another thing I'm wondering about as we sort of get towards this whole question of climate science and climate change is whether also um, – let me see if I can express this in my, in my fumbling way. But, you know, when you think about what climate science is and what theories of climate change are, they really are the result of – a, a, a lot of complex interlocking thinking. In other words, it's not one data set. It's not two, to, two data sets. It's hundreds and hundreds of data sets based on lots of different studies so that ultimately a theory and, a, and an overarching model begins uh, to emerge, at least within the world of climate science. And I'm wondering if that's sort of a difference too, that you guys, you're, you're not trying to build a really complicated theory. In fact, you're looking for the most simple and direct way of understanding what's about to happen that you can find. We are. You know, we're looking at the, uh, the basic fundamentals of, uh, you know, heating, heat distribution, how that affects the uh, day. Like, for example, today we have a front off to our west, and that's the focus of uh, thunderstorms that are going to be popping up uh, this afternoon. So we're, we're looking at a lot of different things, you know, the humidity, the wind, uh, what's happening in the upper regions of the atmosphere, the lower regions of the atmosphere. 
But uh, we also look at uh, information, and we look at these computer guidance models. Um, and I, I think there are some similarities in what we look at and what the climatologists look at. We're looking at how one variable in weather changes with time. And they're basically doing the same thing over a longer period of time. And one thing that's the kind of the nature of the beast with, uh, with weather and climate is that your computer guidance models and your climate models are only as good as the data you put into them. The challenge that we have in meteorology is that we can't measure every cubic foot of the atmosphere. So we have to measure here and there and make guesses in between. And then that gets gridded in the computer guidance models and we make guesses. If that guess is wrong, well, that error gets magnified with time. So that's why we don't go beyond seven days in weather forecasting. And with climate, you know, I, I got to imagine to some degree they're dealing with the same thing. The, the, the data may not be perfect that goes into their climate models. And therefore, the question I raise is, well, what could the error possibly be if you're trying to forecast 50 to 100 years into the future? So if my basic statement is if I can't tell you to the degree what Sunday's temperature is going to be, how can somebody tell me to the degree what the temperature is going to be uh, on the planet Earth, which has variable temperatures, as you know, equator to pole and so on, uh, 50 to 100 years from now. All right. You know, we're going to add to this conversation now. I mean, I haven't even asked these guys, although I think Bruce just gave you kind of a, a little uh, tickle, a little hint of uh, where he's going to go on this. But I haven't even asked these guys to sort of lay out their positions on climate change to whatever degree they have rock solid positions on this. Uh, we're going to do that. We're going to talk about it some more. We're going to take your phone calls, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. But joining us now is Andrew Revkin. As I said, he's been covering global warming, climate change since the 1980s, he at Pace University, he writes the Dot Earth blog for the New York Times, uh, and he's also the author of several books, including Global Warming, Understanding the Forecast. Andrew Revkin, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. I enjoyed listening in on the last a couple of minutes there. Well, some of this some of this show um, derives from a conversation that I think I heard you having with Ira Flato. Working here uh, in public radio, of course, you don't get to listen to a lot of public radio because you're busy trying to get another public radio show on. But I, the time that I will often hear another show is if I'm, I'm in the bathroom because it's on, the, the speakers are on in the bathroom. And so I heard somebody talking to Ira Flato about this. <laughs> and he said this thing, and I'm pretty sure it was you, that really kind of this light bulb went on in my head. And it's sort of the thing that we started out the show with, which is that, yes, the most prominent science communicators in a lot of people's lives, the, the, the people, the, 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 the figures that the average person, you know, interacts with on a one-way basis, on a, uh, on a daily basis, getting information about climate, weather, and just science in general. It, it, it probably is TV meteorologists and specifically the TV meteorologists who are on their local television stations. So, and one thing that you and Ira were talking about is, I mean, there's been some, there have been some overarching studies of this, right, about what, uh, what meteorologists, particularly the ones who are on television, think about climate change and how it might differ from, uh, from what climate scientists think about it. Am I correct about that? Yeah, for sure. There have been surveys. Um, and, and there is more, I think there is more of a range of skepticism in the meteorological community. Now, keep in mind that these are all funky um, delineations anyway. A lot of the leading quote-unquote climate scientists have their degrees in what's called meteorology. So the climatology, the study of climate change is a fairly new um, thing because climate, basic climate science was sort of the underpinning for forecasting and meteorology, but, but climate change science is just really the 
Yeah, I mean, really, really, in a big way, is the last 30 years. So it's a really new field still. So um, when uh, President Obama was introducing the latest national climate assessment uh, to assist him uh, and as sort of part of the backdrop uh, of of that conversation, he brought eight uh, TV weathercasters, both from the local and national level. Uh, Al Roker was there. And, and, you know, based on your looking at that, Andrew Rufkin, I'm wondering, first of all, it seems like a pretty canny move on President Obama's part, realizing, yeah, that's who most constituents, that's who most citizens look to for this kind of information. Yeah, I, I think it's very important. I, I think it, it's hard to uh, on a daily weather forecast, just like like it's hard in a daily newspaper to get in um, discussions of something on a very long time scale, like global climate change from greenhouse gas buildup in the atmosphere. You know, we're talking about multi generational time scales, and not not only that. If even if you wanted to do something about it, uh, we have what there's what's called commitment in the climate system. It's kind of like a big flywheel. Once it gets going, it's hard to turn around. So even if even if President Obama and the Secretary General of the UN somehow magically waved a wand and got the world to stop emitting greenhouse gases, so we're committed to certain trajectories here uh, regardless anyway. So so these timescales are really hard to fit into, as I just said, both daily news coverage and um and in the life of a weather forecaster, which is really about, well, how how severe is the thunderstorm threat today here in the Hudson Valley or where you know where you are? So does it make sense to you, Andrew Rivkin, for these three guys to be talking about climate change? Or, I mean, in a way, they're sort well, of saying, I, well, yeah, it's not really I, what I'm we not, do. I, I think it does make sense uh, when you have the opportunity for weather forecasters uh, to talk about this, just as uh, doctors are a good messenger on um, uh, obesity. <laughs> you know, they're... They're a trusted messenger, uh, even though weather forecasting is hard and it's still beating, you know, often weather, forecast, weather forecasters are despised by the public when things get, go wrong, but we, Not these but we rely on them overall. Yeah, that's, that never happened to our three guests, actually. But yeah, yeah, right. I'm aware of that. <laughs> yeah. By the way, one thing that was important, the last discussion about uh, climate models versus forecast models, there is a big difference in the two things. One is that um, using a, a computer model to forecast the weather for the next two weeks is highly dependent on what's called initial conditions. You know, getting the temperatures and um, sea temperatures and stuff right uh, at the beginning of your model run, so you know that going forward you're actually representing conditions in the real world. In climate models, initial conditions really don't matter. It's more about how one big you're splitting the atmosphere into this giant thing of dice uh, of kind of cubes and. It's how they talk to each other. It's how the how the functioning of this uh, mathematical model meshes with what we know about the real world. So it's kind of a different use of the similar a similar mathematical construct. But it's it's different in the sense that the model's reliability going forward as a climate forecasting device is not not really a function of initial conditions. All right, Andrew Rivkin, uh, hang on here, and everybody hang on. I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk some more about this. 860-275-7266. You may tweet us at WNPR Colin. I'm not sure that I will be very well suited to the new post-climate change society. It bothers me I'm not sure that I Have the tools to deal with the complete collapse of the modern world 
All right. We're back. Uh, by the way, if you want to call in, uh, some people already have, but 860-275-7266. With us by phone is Andrew Revkin, covering global warming since the 1980s. Writes the Dot Earth blog for the New York Times. Uh, in studio, uh, Ryan Hanrahan, meteorologist for NBC uh, Connecticut, and uh, Garrett Argianis, also a meteorologist at NBC Connecticut. I should say full disclosure. I mean, Garrett Argianis is one of my favorite meteorologists ever because he and I used to kind of work together uh, on, a, on a show on WTIC, and he was very fast. Very succinct. I like that in a meteorologist. The rule was do not upset Colin. <laughs> I know. I love the way that – well, never mind. Uh, Bruce DeBreeze is here with us. He's the uh, chief meteorologist at WFSB. And, you know, in talking – speaking of hard science, let me just say this. One of the things that I think is a, a very blurry thing for people out there watching television is the height of meteorologists. If I were to tell you to write down on a piece of paper in order of how tall you think they are, these three guys, you'd get it wrong. All right. I guarantee you get it wrong. Um, all right. Because yeah, I see them in person and it's different. Uh, our number, 860-275-7266. So, Ryan, I'm going to um, uh, ask you a little bit more just based on some of the stuff that, that Andrew Revkin is just saying. I mean – First of all, I'm guessing your station manager isn't leaning on you. Uh, your program director isn't saying, you know, talk more about climate change, Ryan, because in some ways the, the kind of communication that you're doing with an audience uh, doesn't really necessarily invite that kind of speculation, if that's what we would call it. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true in, in some respects. I mean, when you're doing – when you have three minutes to do a weather cast – you know, what are you focused on? Well, you're focused on the holiday weekend, and will it be sunny for someone's barbecue? <laughs> I mean, th- that's really the goal at 5, 5.30 and 6 o'clock at night. But at the same time, there's certainly a lot of opportunities to explore climate change and climate science um, in other parts of the newscast. I mean, we've certainly done a lot of stories uh, post-Sandy about coastal re- resiliency, um, sea level rise, um, and so that a lot of that is incumbent upon the meteorologist to pitch those stories and to go out and and want to cover them. Um, and it's something that I think a lot of stations and a lot of newspapers are open to. Um, but you got to take the initiative to go out and do it. Well, you know, and Bruce, is there another part of this, which is that I'm sure if you go to a barbecue these days, people are going to ask you about climate change. And if you really start talking about what you think about climate change, you may wind up in an argument at the barbecue or half the people may be on one side of the picnic table and half the people on the other side. And that's when you get to your job, not really probably what your bosses want is for you to say something, because this is still in America something of a divisive issue, for you to say something, whatever that something is, that could alienate 30, 40, 50 percent of your audience. That's true. You know, when you go to the Yoloko barbecue, you do get into a discussion that often takes the entire barbecue to, to go through. But I try not to get anybody <laughs> mad. I'll present some of the things that I've learned. Like Ryan said before, you know, you uh, a lot of the things that we learn about climate we're uh, researching on our own. And as far as TV goes, well, you know, we did a special uh, last May on uh, climate change, which uh, did aggravate some some local scientists and some people, you know, talked about how, um, you know, the theory is that the storms that we've had recently, uh, you go back to Sandy Irene and, of course, the October snowstorm that we had that uh, brought a record power outage. People are thinking, well, wow, what's going wrong with our climate Um you know, are these storms necessarily the result of climate change? And I'm thinking to myself, well, let me go back and find out uh, what happened in the past. And that's kind of what I showed in that, uh, that particular weather special, that while there is the perception that storms are getting worse, we've had plenty of bad storms in past years, wh- whether we're in a cooling phase or a warming phase at the uh, present time. So I just kind of try to put things in the right perspective, uh, 
using 36 years of experience and, you know, going back and observing weather for the last 36 years and uh, just try to present it in a way that is not going to uh, get people ticked off, but just kind of present, well, you know what, it's been bad in the past as well. It's not necessarily all happening right now. You know, just a second. Yeah, go ahead. Did you want to say something, Andrew Rufkin? Yeah, yeah, and I've been writing about this reality for years. One of the other issues is we end up, especially in the media and in the public mind, too, um, when something is anomalous or rare uh, and it happens in our our time but didn't happen before in our lives, we think, well, my God, what's new? But but when you look with a long time scale, it's not the case at all. In fact, back in like... Geez, the early 2000, 2002, I wrote a long piece about an important study that looked at uh, the sediment laid down in lake beds around New England and uh, upstate New York. Where you know, It's sort of like a book. You look back, deeper in the lake, the layers uh, chart conditions um, going back millenniums, not just centuries. And it turns out that the Northeast has been hit by periods of uh, that area. The areas that were studied were hit by these extraordinary flooding rain events such the kind of things that scour the, the land and put a layer of gravel into the lake bed. They found that, that these patterns were actually more more um, common uh, a couple thousand years ago than they are now. So, so it's you know you, it's really important to look at that data as well. And and it's really hard uh, the science what's called attribution, like attributing some current pattern or extreme event to this new forcing on the climate system, greenhouse gases is really hard, and it's, it's full of real uncertainty. Um, well, yeah, I want to come back to that, Andrew Revkin, but just, Garrett, I want to go over to you for a second. So, uh, and I, I think, just to sort of piggyback on what Bruce is saying, um, that, I mean, if we had a climate science, if we had a climatologist here, and maybe Andrew will say something to this effect as we go along here, but if we had one in the room, he'd probably be saying, well, yeah, you can't look at one storm and say, well, that's due to climate change, but you can look at extreme weather. Uh, you can, you know, I mean, if you look at the National Climate Assessment, I mean, there's a whole section called extreme weather. Um, but once again, it gets back to what meteorologists do, right? You kind of, you guys are kind of going storm by storm, as opposed to the kinds of the kinds of interlocking cubes, to use uh, Andrew Revkin's term, that that add up to climate science. Absolutely, yes. Uh, you know, we're in that very short-term mindset, so we're looking ahead to the next few days. So if there's a storm like Sandy or like the October 2011 snowstorm, that's going to be the focus. But we're not generally linking storm to storm or discussing even frequency of storms. And I think it's more the frequency and intensity of storms that kind of builds into that discussion of climate change. I mean, uh, Andrew Revkin, if... if um if a, uh, somebody who worked on the National Climate Assessment were here right now talking to us, I'm, ass- I'm assuming one thing that they would say is that Bruce is absolutely right. You can't look at a storm, in tw- one storm in 2014, and say it represents some proof of, of climate change or, or extreme weather. And, but you also can't look at a storm that happened 100 years ago of comparable intensity and say, well, that therefore disproves that there's any uh, really excessive change in, in weather patterns. I mean, climate scientists do believe that extreme weather as a whole, is part of, of climate change, right? Well, no. It depends on it depends on what you're talking about. Heat, the ones that have been most uh, statistically robustly linked to greenhouse force climate change, which is what we're talking about, are, are heat events, really hot spells, and uh, heavy downpours. There you do have statistical significance. You know, statistics, you, you can lie with numbers, but ultimately when you look at the numbers carefully and you have peer review and 
and open data, you can see things that really do jump out at you. And for heat and for heavy downpours, yes, those links are there. But for for most of the other things that society worries about, hurricanes, um, certainly in the Midwest, tornadoes is actually a counterindication. Um, it seems that the tornado there's no relation, no way to see a relationship between tornado activity and global warming. In fact, in the last few years, uh, when we've had hot, dry summers in the Midwest, it's been a tornado drought. So, so you have to look at that stuff too. And you know, anyone who's dispatch, and I try to be as careful and dispassionate as I can about this. And uh, you know, again, not all weird things are because of this new phenomenon. Um, rising sea levels mean that any any coastal storm or hurricane that does hit it will have more of an impact because seas are rise are high, you know, higher than they would otherwise have been without warming climate. So that's another one of the clear cut realities but it's not as simple as saying anything extraordinary is because of global warming and sometimes frankly i've criticized some of the reports of this sort uh, this one is pretty well done the, the ipcc report was very well done this past year past couple of years in terms of laying out what we know and don't know about extreme weather and, and the changing climate so uh, i'm going to just do a very very crude third graders a summary of where I would see those two reports, the National Climate Assessment and the IPCC report. I mean, the most bare bones um, assessment uh, or summary, because that's all I'm actually capable of. Um, and, and then, and then, so Andrew, stop me if you feel like I'm getting it wrong. And, and then I just want to sort of go around the rim here with these guys and just sort of see how their thinking either dovetails or, or differs. So, I mean, you know, I think the the basic, the bare bones are that global temperatures are rising, that that's due to increased presence of, of greenhouse gases um, and, and that uh, that so these greenhouse gases are primarily due to human activity uh, and that, uh, as Andrew just said, even if we stopped all the greenhouse gases tomorrow, a lot of things would happen uh, that are probably not all that desirable, but that if we don't, in fact, curtail greenhouse gases, more extreme things, more extreme changes uh, will happen. Um, Andrew, is that a reasonably okay assessment of, of, of basically where those two reports are right now? Uh, yeah. Okay. So let's go around the table. Ryan, is that basically your thinking, or do yeah. you do you have places where you would break off there? No, I think that I think that's that's what the scientific consensus really is: is that you know the the Earth is warming, humans are playing a substantial role in that. Seventy-three in New mean, London, burning and sixty-nine fossil in the Litchfield Hills. Since the industrial With temperatures this warm, we just need it. And you know we're pumping a lot of greenhouse hey, Penguin, gases into the atmosphere. It's, going the to, it's already having an effect. So it looks like the most significant. Um, but I think just like Andrew said, much. one of the things that drives meteorology. Sorry, your house and I don't melted, see you can't hang around this here. kind Beat of reporting. Uh, Today's show was TV produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Josh it's, Malaya and Anna Novak. Greg Hill and Lee Newton appeared in the intro, and Greg tweeted for us a WNPR column. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. It takes about 30 seconds to start seeing the headlines about that thing. Our show pages, articles, and videos from the Faith Middleton show staff fishing for crabs on Audubon Street. Visit our website, WNPR.org. When if you look at the actual peer-reviewed literature on tornadoes and climate change, like now, Andrew said, there's no link. All right. and, um, so and, we've got you know, more time there are some indications with, uh, that there would be, group. even though the atmosphere uh, and, uh, becomes more well, stable, actually, unstable in a warmer world, there's less wind shear, so uh, you don't have the wind shear to actually develop uh, and Ryan a supercell 
battle um, uh, and a tornado. FSB, so when we see things like that, or decrease. you know, linking so, hurricanes, uh, Bruce, you know, when I get back to my computer, change, there's going to be there's a lot of um, really uh, mixed uh, and scientific and literature to me, on whether hurricanes you know, are becoming this, more frequent this or more isn't intense. Really the kind of thing some where we can they may become less frequent. So that you know, I think we all sort. I'm sure I speak for the other ones here at the table. We all sort of groan when we see those headlines in national media. You can't just let Bruce Debris sit there and construct this whole other alternative theory. It's evident this. to me from uh, this is way, way too so important for exactly us, on the for same side of the for our grandchildren. As what, and I'm sure you get that. I'm sure well, when you, you know, say I what you just said in, in other contexts, uh, you get that. What's your an answer open-minded back? skeptic. I, well, I, you know, as weather forecasters, you know, I, we have to be skeptics. We go in every the, day. We look at information. The answer I have is, you know, I'll take right the heat. What's, I'm what's looking at all that. different angles of this. But uh, this you know, issue. coming to uh, climate change, um, I don't think we can just focus on uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, you know, I mean, global carbon warming dioxide to some extent or against is, it. I'm looking at all the, the basic facts. You talk about the ice sheets melting and everything like that. More prevalent in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. That's the biggest greenhouse gas. It's been now. I haven't done the research, but I heard that the measured the 19 carbon dioxide and so on and so forth. I think there's so much misinformation very, very out there. We heard things about the polar bears, bears how present. the polar bears But aside from carbon dioxide, we also have to look at other are, uh, things that are very, big drivers and very high. So, one, you know, I'm willing the to take our the heat. Oceans. Um, and uh, I, 2008, I don't claim to be an expert on climate. My belief well, the Pacific Ocean is starting to cool off. It's what we call the PDL. If it is happening, if it is carbon dioxide, it's a cooling stage now, all the various other related to with burning fossil cooling. We can reduce that. In addition to that, the sun, that's the, the ultimate so source I, of our know, energy. I, I totally uh, believe the sun what your, your has been saying that, you know what, relatively one thing we can all agree on is um, that why I've take been any doing chances? a little reading let's, and uh, from what I've seen, uh, all that it's going forward stage, to uh, about 100 years and maybe getting weaker. The planet, if we're going to burn less sun fossil fuel, spots disappear, we could actually be energy, uh, then rolled into a pollution period, 20 to 30 uh, years of carbon cooling. monoxide. You combine carbon that with the uh, PDO going into a cool state, and we're all better off that way. Brian, do you think that your job is changing and will change over the next five years? I mean, really going into the show before asking you guys the questions, I might have, you know, had some, maybe been able to make some guess about what But for the most part, you know, whether I'm looking at you guys or and, Bob um, Maxson you know, or, we have to talk or about Simmons cooling or, too. Uh, or Joe cooling Fury or Rachel Frank. Well, I know the best thing in the world either. But, uh, but back to uh, I don't really know what, the sun was what weak people think from, about these kinds of questions. Because it's really kind of not, as we've been saying, we had what they called the that big minimum. part of your job description. When sunspot you activity was very, very years, low. The profession will change a little bit and maybe it does become addressing those kinds of questions incorporating that kind of science into the science you already use becomes a trend. And in some ways I'm kind of criticizing you media here is that we always seem to be presenting change. the um, and I, bad I, I think side of I think it is important. I, I mean, I, I think the you good really side. need to educate people. What's so bad um, about warming on yes, climate change and how it rise, will impact them? I think we uh, are always um, telling people that. But I don't think you necessarily have to do that. Dangerous, in no matter the how high the context of a three-minute weather but, segment, um, I think there's certainly room for that. There are some good things. Bruce mentioned that they had done a special and talked about climate change. There's certainly other avenues in the world that's got ever-growing population. So I don't think the two are. Uh, high energy necessarily costs have to go together, but I think some warmth, thoughtful well, maybe our energy costs um, would diminish. Reporting on I mean, these are just things that are in the back of my mind. I don't thing. have a lot of knowledge mm-hmm. on Garrett, that, but said, I, think it was I, I don't ago, like the way media always portrays those 15 years, global warming or climate change as, as your approach to this a negative. I think we need to do a little bit more on what's positive Although, of course, the energy costs this was covered today on Where We Live, which you can hear Where We Live's climate change show. I think that, as mentioned earlier, we're kind of training 
there are a lot of places now that never needed and air you appreciate that. Heat air conditioning and, but and as time has uh, gone along and I've here, researched you know, through your the American Meteorological Society, there's a variety well, of point, journal articles um, and like we've conferences. Said, you know, those of us sitting at this table are feelings more day-to-day type meteorologists. So, in my opinion, I'm going to rely on those who are studying climate every day. That's their main focus. And if you look at the numbers, about 97% of climate scientists say that Besides, there is climate change happening. Uh, I'm a so, sailor and, uh, you know, I'm inclined to go along with the peer-reviewed research that and says, you know, this is happening. Let's, you know, and of course, and then what do we do about it? And I think that's, of course, the bigger discussion, and that goes more towards policy, which is out of my realm as a meteorologist. But I think that's where a lot of the public stands is, okay, what are we going to do? What's our next step? You know, Andrew Revkin, Ryan Henry Henry before, was talking about how meteorologists are tearing their hair out sometimes when they linkages between I don't have an answer for it. In fact, like I've told a but number somewhere of there's people, a climate scientist right I'm now trying to find an answer for it, but I have Bruce noticed and a number of people really have him about said to me, Bruce is, Bruce is so eloquent hasn't it become more windier? He's, he's got you know, the windy sun and he's got the Pacific Ocean Oscillation. He's got a lot of things going on there that... I don't necessarily have a great explanation for that, whether it's climate change or something else. It's something that's still a big mystery to me. From the climate scientist community. So can you kind of react to that a little bit? I mean, how do these two maybe like get talking to each other? But Brian, once again, that's more and more what your it job is, is right? Because, what Bruce just um, described. Well, not your job, but it's a byproduct a of your job. People come up to you and say, I've been noticing X. Really Can you explain it in terms of why? Well, absolutely. And, 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 you know, it's it's for for us really to educate ourselves about the science and have an answer for people. You know, we we do our best. We try to give people an answer for how they should dress their kids as they send them to school in the morning. We also now are fielding questions on climate science and, you know, global wind patterns and things like that. And I think, you know, keeping up with the science is important for us to do. I mean, one of the things, you know, as Andy mentioned earlier, Statistically significant impacts of climate change, heavy rainfall events. The Northeast has seen a dramatic, uh, the research shows, has seen like a 75% increase in the number of extreme rainfall events. uh, But they haven't necessarily seen an increase in hurricanes or tornadoes or anything like that. So sort of sifting through things like that. We're talking about working with meteorologists and what you're talking about. All right. Thanks to all of you guys for coming in here. It's a great conversation. My email address is Colin, C-O-L-I-N-W. NPR. Uh, but if you're really mad, send it to and what that means is there's always It's not like more IPCC reports. We'll be back tomorrow with the notes. Once you know, again, uh, thanks to Ryan and Bruce and, and Garrett for coming in here today. Step in the same, same I'm Tyrone Wolf, and whenever I go out on a date, the very first thing I like to bring up is climate change. It makes for a really good icebreaker. You start to pick and choose the science, and that's what happens with um, where you get divergent views, even among very smart people with the same information. Just to give you an example, I did a piece a couple of years ago on Dot Earth on my blog about four different Nobel Prize winners in physics. So these are Nobel laureates in physics. You know, they know they know this stuff, the basics of physics, and. They, re- they had the whole range of views on global warming, from it's a hoax to it's a serious crisis. And that, that's, uh, that says a lot to me. It says that don't count on more information making things, um, making the, the societal debate um, uh, clearer. 
So one of the things I know, I mean, I've got a bunch of questions for you, Andrew, and I know you have to go, but uh, one of the things that I know that you've written about is that, that then maybe when people get the same information but from a different source, it has a bigger impact than more information from the same source about the same thing. And, and for example, I mean, probably the only people in the world more trusted and beloved than a local, local meteorologist uh, are one's own religious leaders, right? And one of the things right. you've looked for is, and we see evangelical Christians beginning to talk about this subject in a different way. We see the Pope talking about it in a different way. Yeah, I just wrote about that today. Again, uh, I, I was at a va- meeting at the Vatican for a week on su- the uh, what we call sustainable sustainable development. How do we uh, head toward nine billion people with still a thriving planet and you know the fewest regrets? And and it was fascinating to see scientists, including one of the world's great oceanographers, uh, uh, Walter Monk, uh, hanging out with theologians <laughs> and and having serious discussions about this. And it gets to the reality, and this gets back to what I was saying about the divergent views. Um, the science only sort of, science kind of creates the shape of the playing field, like, you know, like a soccer field, but it doesn't tell you um, what the rules of the game are going to be. Uh, we as society make up, based on our values, and often on divergent values and discussion and uh, debate in a, de- in a democracy, we kind of come up with this, what we're going to do or not do. And that means it's never going to be neat and clean. And actually, the more democratic you are, probably the more, the less neat and clean it'll be. And and that's why crosstalk is really important among finding ways for people to look among uh, all those um, points of heat. There are definitely points of agreement. Like, you know, greenhouse gases actually function. Um, Some people will always feel that the science points to them being less uh, important uh, than, than other people feel. And that's not going to necessarily go away. But what I found, too, in the social science shows that even people who are very divergent on uh, their views on global warming seriousness often agree on things like energy efficiency or the need for uh, more research on energy frontiers, whether it's nuclear power or solar panels. So there's ways to go forward, even when you have that divergent array of views. All right, Andrew, Andrew Rivkin, thanks so much for, for taking the time with us. Uh, sure. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to our meteorologist some more about all this. Dark woods and roll and bloom. Oh, what a glorious day For picnics and frisbees and roller skaters Friends and lovers and lonely sunbathers Everyone's out in merry Manhattan in January. It'll be 73 in New London and 69 in the Litchfield Hills. With temperatures this warm, we just needed... Hey, Penguin, you can't talk during the forecast. So it looks like the most significant front will come through a month... Look, I'm sorry your house melted, but you can't hang around here. Beat it! Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Josh Nalea and Anna Novak. Greg Hill and Lee Newton appeared in the intro, and Greg tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Hilton Catterley. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff fishing for crabs on Audubon Street, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose Wants to Marry Harry. And now... 
back to Colin. All right. Um, so we've got a little bit more time left uh, with uh, with this group. Uh, and, uh, well, actually, let me reintroduce them. From NBC Connecticut, uh, we have Garrett Arjanis uh, and Ryan Hanrahan from uh, WFSB. We have their chief meteorologist, Bruce DePriest. So, um, Bruce, you know, when I get back to my computer, there's going to be some emails. Um, uh, and, and they're going to say to me, you know, this – this isn't really the kind of thing where we can afford to have kind of a collective agnosticism. You know, that this, this global crisis is significant enough with melting ice sheets in, in Antarctica and melting glaciers and stuff like that. that you can't just let Bruce DePriest sit there and, and construct this whole other alternative theory about this. Uh, this is way, way too important for us, for our children, for our grandchildren. What, and I'm sure you get that. I'm sure when you say what you just said in, in other contexts, you get that. What's your answer back? Well, you know, I the the answer I have is you know I'll take the heat. I, I'm looking at all different angles of this uh, this issue. Uh, I'm neither um, a person who's uh, you know believes in anthropogenic global warming or against it. I'm looking at all the the basic facts. Now you talked about the ice sheets melting and everything like that. I just saw some recent data that said the Antarctica, the ice sheet there, is the greatest it's been. Uh, 2014, then since it's been uh, starting to be measured in the 1970s and so on and so forth. I think there's so much misinformation out there. We heard things about the polar bears, how the poor polar bears are suffering. Well, I understand their populations are uh, very, very high. So, uh, you know, I'm willing to take the heat. Um, I, I don't claim to be an expert on climate. My belief is this. This is what I say to people. You know what? If it is happening, if it is carbon dioxide, the, all the various other pollution that comes along with burning fossil fuels, if we can reduce that, all the better for it. So, I, you know, I, I totally believe what your, your guest has been saying, that, you know what, one thing we can all agree on is that why take any chances? Let's, uh, let's um, all agree to go forward to uh, make things better for the planet. If we're going to burn less fossil fuel, make things more efficient, go to solar energy, then that's the less pollution, uh, whether it's carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide or whatever we're talking about. I think in the long run, we're all better off that way. Ryan, do you think that your job is changing and will change over the next five years? I mean, really going into the show before asking you guys the questions, I might have, you know, had some, maybe been able to make some guess about what people believe. But for the most part, you know, whether I'm looking at you guys or Bob Maxson or, or Gil Simmons or, or Joe Fury or Rachel Frank, well, I know what Joe believes about everything, but uh, that's a different thing. Uh, I don't really know what, these, what people think about these kinds of questions because it's really kind of not, as we've been saying, that big a part of your job description. Do you think in the next five years the profession will change a little bit and, and – and maybe it does become addressing those kinds of questions, incorporating that kind of science into the science you already use uh, becomes a trend? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think you will start to see more reporting on climate change. Um, and I, I, think, I think it is important. I, I mean, I, th- I think you really need to educate people um, on climate change and how it will impact them. Um, but I don't think you necessarily have to do that in the – context of a three-minute weather segment. I think there's certainly room for that. You know, Bruce mentioned that they had done a special and talked about climate change. There's certainly other avenues to do that uh, and to educate people. So I don't think the two are uh, necessarily have to go together, but I think some thoughtful um, reporting on climate change uh, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Garrett, you said I think it was 15 years ago that you uh, finished up your meteorology education. Over those 15 years, have you changed? Do you feel, feel as though your approach to this subject matter is evolving? Yeah, I think that there are many of us that when this was all coming 
up as a discussion initially, we're all skeptical. And I think that, as you mentioned earlier, we're kind of trained to be skeptical as scientists and we should appreciate that. But as time has gone along and I've researched through the American Meteorological Society, there's a variety of journal articles and conferences, I would say that my feelings have evolved over time and there's a lot of colleagues that feel that way. Let me grab uh, one quick call here from uh, John in uh, or on or near Long Island. Hi, John. Yes. Yes. What's on your mind? Yes, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm a sailor, and I've been sailing on Eastern Long Island for about 40 years. And I've noticed in the past 10 to 15 years, there's a definite increase in the average wind speed. Um, 10 to 15 years ago, 30-knot winds were rare and becoming more and more common. And my question is, uh, first of all, is this something that may be attributable, attributable to um, climate change? All right, well, and also, uh, Bruce... is it possibly related to the El Nino-La uh, Nina cycle? Bruce, Bruce was nodding his head at least about the wind speed. Well, you know, I don't have an answer for it. In fact, I've told a number of people, I, I'm trying to find an answer for it, but I have noticed a number of people have said to me, hasn't it become more windier, you know, windy over the years? And I, I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, but I don't necessarily have a great explanation for that, whether it's climate change or something else. That's something that's still a big mystery to me. All right. Uh, Wolfie just said uh, I should give my email address. Maybe I should give somebody else's email address, considering what the emails may be like. But, Brian, once again, that's that's more and more what your job is, right? What Bruce just described. Well, not your job, but it's a byproduct of your job. People come up to you and say, I've been noticing X. Yep. Can you explain it in terms of Y? Well, absolutely. And, and you know, it's it's for, for us really to educate ourselves about the science and have an answer for people. You know, we, we do our best. We try to give people an answer for how they should dress their kids as they send them to school in the morning. And we also now are fielding questions on climate science and, you know, global wind patterns and things like that. And I think, you know, keeping up with the science is important for us to do. I mean, one of the things, you know, as uh, Andy mentioned earlier, statistically significant impacts of climate change, heavy rainfall events. The Northeast has seen a dramatic, as the research shows, has seen like a 75% increase in the number of extreme rainfall events. But they haven't necessarily seen an increase in hurricanes or tornadoes or anything like that. So sort of sifting through things like that. This is one great thing about working with meteorologists is you can give them the rap sign and they absolutely know what you're talking about. All right. Thanks to all of you guys for coming in here. This is a great conversation. My email address is colin, C-O-L-I-N at WNPR.org. But if you're really mad, send it to ctalarski at WNPR.org. We'll be back tomorrow with the notes. Once again, thanks to Ryan and Bruce and Garrett for coming in here today. Global warming's good for you. I'm Kyone Wolf, and whenever I go out on a date, the very first thing I like to bring up is climate change. It makes for a really good icebreaker.